the, the very first time that you responded to God's grace, when you recognized that God loved you so very, very, very much, and that you were lost, you were drowning, you were without hope, and you were destined for eternity without God. Someday, sometime, your eyes were opened, and you were absolutely overwhelmed by God's grace. You couldn't believe it. You saw the state you were in, and you knew that God cared for you deeply, that you'd been rescued, and that God's grace overwhelmed you felt a little bit like the psalmist did in Psalm 18. He reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. At that moment, during those first days that we had met our Lord, we spent time with him, and we start talking about him with everyone. In fact, we keep pinching ourselves. Do you believe it? I don't get it. Why did God do this? How come, how come, how come? Until, until trouble, trouble hits. Crisis comes. And our perspective and view of God gets a little bit fuzzy. Huh. We don't understand the bigger story at this moment. We had just begun this wonderful relationship. How come, God, there's pain? And there's sorrow and there's hurt. And how come this world is broken? Well, you know what? Israel was right there. They were supernaturally freed from slavery, only to be brought to the Red Sea, mountains on each side, no escape, because the whole Egyptian army was behind them. God, 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 I saw you work. You freed us. We're following you. We're listening to you. Moses is telling us what's going on. And, and this is where you lead us? God, I don't know you as well as Moses knows you. And, and I'm just totally buffaloed. Why? Why would you do this? And they begin doubting. And they begin wondering. Oh. Well, over the past few weeks, we've been camping out in Exodus 14. We've been learning from their journey. And we've been calling it the Red Sea Rules. And Red Sea Rule number one is that God directs our footsteps so we can display His glory. God uses all the circumstances in our life so that he might be magnified. Ritzy rule number two is acknowledge your enemy. The enemy's there. The enemy's big. The enemy's powerful. The enemy can disrupt 
but fix your eyes on Jesus. Red Sea rule number three is pray. 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 Stay calm and confident in God, but, but talk to God. Cry out to God. Let him hear your heart. Be confident in God. And last week, Red Sea rule number four, walk by faith. We may not always see it. We may not understand God's plans. But God sets us up well in order to walk by faith. We saw last week that leaders needed to listen to God so they could walk by faith. And then we saw that followers needed to walk with God and listen to God so they could walk by faith. And that's all exciting. That's all really, really good. But the question you may have, and some of you have asked me, is, well, how do we build our faith? We want to walk by faith. We want to listen to God. We want to be more courageous. But how do we walk by faith? How do we build our faith? Before we jump into the text today, let's pray. God, we come before you. We recognize that your word is a light to our path. We know that. We know that you're a God of love and mercy, filled with grace. We know, God, that you desire deeply to have a relationship with each and every one of us. And yet, Lord, there are times we struggle. We struggle with the circumstances in our life. We struggle with the timing in our life. We struggle. And the enemy seems to disrupt us and discourage us. So, Lord, we want to learn about you. We want to learn from you. We want to understand you better this day. And we want to grow in our faith. We don't want to be... Well, the same person today as we were yesterday. So teach us and grow us. May your spirit convict us and inspire us, Father. We pray for all the other churches all over the world that are proclaiming your word, that are equipping the saints, that are strengthening the flock, places that are lifting their hands up in worship. Places that in spite of the hard situations or circumstances that they're in or that they're looking forward to this week are meeting with God's people to refocus and recalibrate. We pray for Chain of Lakes Community Church and for Grace Point and for Northbridge in particular. We pray for our staff and our teachers downstairs in our church that are not right here in this worship center. We pray, God, that you would do a work, that we would be salt and light. We pray, Father, even now, that we open up a very familiar passage, that somehow you would, again, give us fresh eyes. Teach us, Lord. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. 
You know, it's interesting. As a pastor, I get quite a few different emails. Sometimes it's about the messages. Sometimes they're positive. Sometimes they're negative. I, I sometimes get emails from community. I sometimes get phone calls from folks who are just struggling, and, and they kind of drive by our sign on Rand Road and, and decide to give you a call. I had one lady connect with me who's just struggling with God. Just sharing with me that, you know, I, I'm, I'm growing in this relationship with God, but I just struggle with how He operates. And you know what? I could relate. Because how often as we read through these scriptures, do we wonder about God's methods, God's ways? Isn't that true? I mean, we love Bible stories with good endings, but struggle at time with God's methods. Let me give you an example. Noah. Everybody's heard of Noah. How many houses have I walked in and the ark is on the baby's wall? And all the cute little animals are going in and oh, this is really nice. It's cute. You know, the story of Noah is both a harsh and a beautiful story. I, I get it. And as wonderful it was that everybody gets rescued and, and at least two of every animal on this planet are saved. But wow, God, a flood? Everybody gets wiped out? God, I, I like this part. I, I'm not so sure I like this part. We wonder how God decides. We read through the scriptures and sometimes he says, wipe out cultures, armies. And other times he says, the enemy, well, their armies, why don't you take them and give them a feast? It feels random at times. Yet again, as we understand God's word, we look and we know that God is both just and loving. He is a merciful God and desires all to enjoy the blessings of his presence. We finally readily admit, even though it shouldn't be hard, but, but it takes us a while sometimes to admit we don't know the whole story. We're not smart like God. We're not in control like God. We don't understand how people think or what goes on. So I think, again, we struggle. If we're honest, we also know that all of us have offended a holy God and deserve death. Every one of us. We have broken his laws. And the scriptures say if he is going to be just, death will follow. It's okay, I think, to cringe and say, I don't get it, because we don't. Personally, I just got through reading the book of Jeremiah through, a prophet who near the end of, well, Judah's existence, as they were being taken captive because of their disobedience, Jeremiah would pray and Jeremiah would cry and Jeremiah would be the spokesman and tell these folks, you've continually well, 
worshiped other gods. You've continually rejected me. You've continually gone all these other places. I really am not your God. And I have shared with you that if you choose to go this direction, that someday you will pay the consequences. And there's times over and over that Jeremiah is begging, 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 please listen. God's going to judge. Listen. Your way is not best. Your way isn't good. Listen to the Almighty. And they didn't. And they went off to 70 years of captivity. Now today, <laughs> we continue to focus on a wonderful text. But I need to warn you, I think it's hard text. We're going to read in Exodus. You can turn there. Like I said, we've been spending our time there. We're going to finish up this chapter actually today. In Exodus chapter 14, we're going to start at verse 23. And you can follow along in your Bibles or up on the screen. And I've asked Melissa to read this text for us. So you can follow along. Exodus chapter 14. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's forces... Chariots and charioteers chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from these Israelites, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. When all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, Raise your hand over the sea again. Then the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians and their chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. Then the waters returned and covered all the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh. Of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, as the water stood up like a wall on both sides. That is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians on that day. And the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. The Egyptians' massive army chased Israel into the sea. It was dry ground and there were walls of water on both sides. God at this time threw their forces into total confusion, twisted their wheels. <laughs> the soldiers knew immediately, God, Israel's God is fighting for them. Scriptures tell us that once Israel gets on the other side, Moses raises his hand again and the waters return. Moses obeys, and the sea is restored. The soldiers tried to escape, but nobody survived. There are at least 600 chariots 
all of the soldiers of Egypt. How many? Thousands? Tens of thousands? But no one survived. The scriptures say God rescued Israel that day. They walked through the sea on dry ground. It also says God was glorified. God was magnified. He clearly displayed his power and his justice and his authority. And Egypt was judged, all of Egypt. Now this alone, I think, is a series of messages. But we're going to move forward. The Israelites saw the bodies strewn on the beach. I don't know what emotions they suffered at that moment. I'm pretty sure all the chariots and all those with heavy armor probably just sunk. But there were some that made it close, and their dead bodies filled the beach. Although there were a gamut of emotions, I'm sure one thing the scriptures tell us is that they had just seen and experienced the mighty power of God, and the scriptures say that they were filled with awe. In your Bibles, many of the Bibles, the word awe, it is translated fear, or to revere, or to stand in awe, or to worship, or to respect. This Hebrew word literally occurs 314 times in the Old Testament. The scriptures say as soon as they got on the beach, they feared God, they worshiped God, they were in awe of God. I remember quite a few years ago when I was sitting at the Deer Park Starbucks with a group of four of the guys. And we were reading through the scriptures, and we had met early in the morning, and we are reading through the Bible together and just asking God some questions and learning about God. And one of my friends, his name was Rich, he looked at us, and he basically said this. He says, do you guys understand how much God talks about fearing him? And I remember not even one of us even responded. It was part in the scripture that we're reading, but I think it hit all of us like a sledgehammer. Even though every one of those guys had gone to Bible school, even though most of us had read through the scriptures numerous times, his sentence riveted us. And then he said, do you think we ought to grow in fear of God? It absolutely changed the way that I think of God at that specific moment. In this instance, in this situation in Exodus 4, God's love and power and authority and justice was all perfectly displayed, even though we don't understand it. But when we see, or anybody sees, God display his love and power and authority and justice, it gets our attention. 
God has that effect on us, personally or even through stories like this. You see, seeing God's power clearly produces an awe or a fear or a respect. Sometimes you see the t-shirts, no fear. And I'm sure maybe people who wear the t-shirts that say no fear are probably just kind of uh, either wearing the t-shirt, maybe they even believe it, that they have nothing at all to fear, that they are totally self-sufficient, that they're able to be wise enough and smart enough and powerful enough not to be afraid of anything. And I'm just going to go. Well, that's probably a great position to be in, except when we're talking about God. Because a no-fear mentality about God is not wise. You see, a lack of fear is not strength, it's blindness. In fact, it's foolishness. I had this conversation with another gentleman today, I'm sorry, this week. And we were just talking about the fear of garage door springs. Now, honestly, most of you may, may not even, what are you talking about? I know one thing, in our lives, all the time, there's a garage door spring that breaks in your house sometime. And you look at it personally, even as a homeowner, even as someone who's kind of handy with their hands, and then you make a call, and then you talk to someone and say, hey, how hard is it to change out a, a garage door spring? Every time I've asked that question of anyone who knows what they're doing, it says, don't do it. Don't do it. Respect the spring. <laughs> really? Respect the spring? And they'll tell me stories. You know what? I know guys that look like this now. Yeah. Or this. That's the guys I know that did not respect the spring. So you say, oh, come on, I can do this. No, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. So you call the guy that does it. He comes out. Dude, this looks simple. Yeah, a little bar here, a little thing here. Like, what's the problem? And all he does is look at you and smile. And he goes, that's why you pay me the big bucks. You also open up an electrical panel sometimes. And you see all these really, really fat wires. And you're a homeowner, you go, you know what? I can add a breaker, no big deal. And your friendly electricians look at you with fear and intrepidation. Do you understand the juice in that box? Yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. And so if you're ignorant or you have no fear or you go, no, I can do it, or hey, I watch YouTube. <laughs> YouTube teaches me everything. Maybe you do it and maybe it works. But there are some things in our life, realistically, we ought to fear. And those are rather trivial examples of fearing God. But throughout the scriptures, a clear view of God affects us. In fact, when we see God clearly, 
We fear God. And in the scriptures, you know what the response is to the majority of the people that see God clearly? They fall on their faces. An unbelievable respect in fear. Let me read some things. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. This is Ezekiel, a prophet. He's writing an apocryphal literature. He's trying to help us understand some of the visions of God that he has seen. And he writes this. Above this surface was something that looked like a throne. And on the throne, high above, was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. From what appeared to be waist up. He looked like a glimmering amber, flickering like a fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame, shining with splendor. All around him was a glowing halo, like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. When I saw it, Ezekiel says, I fell on my face on the ground. Revelation chapter 4, there's a group of elders that are meeting, 24 of them, and they're coming into the throne room. And this is what the scriptures say, the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the one sitting on the throne. In 2 Chronicles, the temple had just opened Chapter 7, starting at verse 1. When Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of God filled it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they were casual about it and kind of walked around and kind of crossed their legs. No. They fell face down and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. King Solomon. Although some of us uh, don't always respect him and his lifestyle and his choices, he still was used by God to write his word. And King Solomon, basically, in the book of Ecclesiastes, goes through all of the pathways that a person takes to try to find joy and fulfillment. And as you read Ecclesiastes, it's, it's almost depressing. But basically, Solomon says, hey, I, I know wealth doesn't do it. I know having lots of wives doesn't do it. I know having lots of power, all that fades. In fact, Solomon said, I could ask for anything in the whole world, and I could get it, but I found none of that satisfies me. The very last two verses in Ecclesiastes. This is what King Solomon says. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. For this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether it be good or bad. 
The scriptures are filled with admonitions. Fear God. Fear God. God is a powerful God. God is a loving God, but God is a God of his word. Don't be casual. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Peter writes this at the end of his life. Respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. Fear God. I think the fear of God is taught and it's modeled. And I think that is why so many times in the church today and even in families today, we wonder and we ask, how come our people don't fear God? How come my kids don't fear God? How come... And we ask that question. But in Psalm 34, starting in verse 9 and verse 11, I think what the psalmist is saying is this, is that the fear of God is caught. It's caught. The psalmist writes, Fear the Lord, you, his godly people, for those who fear him will have all they need. And he says this, Come, my children, and listen to me. And I will teach you to fear the Lord. You see, teaching to fear God is intentional and it's relational. It's teaching kids and others from the book, but it's also living it out. It's words and it's actions. Yes, we can hear that God is faithful, and we can hear that God is just and that God is loving. But if we take his word and take it lightly and don't respect him and don't obey what he asks us to do, <laughs> we're not practicing what we preach. In fact, as you look at your kids and your family and the folks you have influence over, teaching them to fear God ought to be a priority. And I'm not saying this for anyone who have, especially kids who have grown up and out of the house and saying, oh, I wish I would have done this different. Well, all of us have regrets. But really, teaching kids, teaching others, teaching disciples how to fear God is more important than science, piano, or soccer. And yet we as parents will spend all kinds of money, spend all kinds of time to make sure our kids can kick the ball in a goal. I'm not against that. I'm not. But if we ask the question, how do we teach our kids to fear God? Have this healthy respect. Well, I think sometimes it's kind of like as you rear your kids. Again, whether you spank them or discipline them a different way, but, you know, as they're growing up and they're three and four and five and six years old, you are teaching them to respect you. You're teaching them to listen, to obey you. And sometimes, hopefully, the punishment matches their disobedience but when I was growing up, it was really clear. I listen to dad or I get a spanking. That's it. No, not, no, not even a negotiation. It wasn't. <laughs> no, you listen to me, Rick, or 
This is what happens. Now, I got to tell you that when I was 22 years old, he never talked to me like that again. Maybe, hopefully, a little younger too, but, but as I got older, what happened is that I started to see my dad's wisdom and love for me. And when he asked, although there wasn't always an immediate obedience every time, I started obeying my dad differently and respecting my dad differently as he got older. In fact, what I learned as I became a father and as I be, you know, began to serve as a pastor, man, my dad was wise. Holy cats. Why didn't I listen to him when I was 12? That would have saved me some bruises. And I think that's how it is with God sometimes. God, you're treating me kind of infant, well, as an infant. And, and I think that's how it is in the beginning of a relationship. We see this as more of a rule book and say, oh, man. But as you spend time with our Lord, you see the wisdom and the grace. And you want to obey him and listen to him out of respect because you love him. So the question is this, what do you want your kids to remember? How much time you spent with them on the basketball court? Or how much time you helped them know God? I think what you do, your kids remember, no matter what the age. I am still surprised with my conversations with my son and my daughter because they're still looking at my life. They're still seeing what's important. They're still asking me, why do you do what you're doing now? Why don't you? And I have conversations with them. I get to still influence them. They don't live with me. They don't even have to listen to me. <laughs> They're long gone. But I have that opportunity. I believe that your kids, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors will know if you fear God. I, I, I do. That you respect God. How you spend your time, how you talk, what's a priority, how you spend your money, how you react, all shows how we fear God. In fact, I say that our view of God shouts to our world and to our church. So, experiencing God in crisis helps us grow in respect and ultimately in faith. Israel, as we go back to our spots, they're on the seashore. They're looking out. There's bodies all over. Israel saw God work. Israel saw God move. Israel feared God and trusted God. And let me say it this way. Growth in faith, faith usually follows fear of God. Look at the text. Israel feared, and then they grew in faith. Verse 31, when the people of Israel saw the mighty power of the Lord, he unleashed against the Egyptians. They were filled with awe, or they feared God. 
They put their faith in the Lord and they put their faith in the servant Moses. They feared God and then they started trusting God differently. Now the sad thing is, and and this really is the truth, is that if we look at Israel, we realize, we know that they didn't learn very well. But, But sometimes we don't. We see God work. We trust God. We know what's right. And we still choose not to fear God or obey God. So Israel, they grew in their faith in God. They recognized this. And they also grew in their faith in God's leader, Moses. God's chosen leader for Israel. You see, in my opinion, faith is making reasonable assumptions. Let me give you an illustration. When you get in your shower and you turn the water to hot, or at least the perfect spot, you expect paradise all the time, right? Because, man, for years and years, maybe you've been turning it to that spot, and boom, there it is, warm water. How cool is this? You don't sit there and say, do I have faith that this is going to happen? You just assume it because it's happened over and over and over again. When we turn the key in our lock, if it's the key, door opens. And since we're talking about garage doors, if we're pressing the garage door opener, (laughs) the garage door opens. We have faith that it's going to do that. Wouldn't it be amazing to live our lives actually believing God like that? When he asks us to do something, we fear and respect him. We know he knows what's best. We don't even question it. We just say, our God, he said this, he's going to do it. I'm going to trust him. And if I'm standing in front of a Red Sea and there are armies behind me, you know what? My God's got a purpose. I'm going to trust you, God. You've been faithful. You've never let me down. You have been faithful. Now, let me say this, is that I think our view of God often blurs in crisis, and so does our memory. I've seen it. I've experienced. I've also been in hospital rooms with young parents looking at me, saying, is God here? Yes. He, he's unfaithful. I, I don't understand it. I don't. But he's faithful. I don't see clearly right now. And oftentimes crisis, whether it's a Red Sea or whether it's cancer or whether it's a divorce or you name it. We look at it. And the enemy uses this to blur us and we forget God's faithfulness. But it is in crisis that we see God work best. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, I'd like to read that for you. You can follow along up on the screen if you'd like. But this is the Apostle Paul. And he writes this. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, those in Corinth, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. 
We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. What Paul was saying, it was hard. I'm not even coming out of this one. The pressure, the hurt. But, but, you circle. I encourage you to circle those buts in your Bible. But as a result, we stop relying on ourselves and we learn to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him and will continue to rescue us. And you are helping us by praying for us. And many people would give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers. How cool is that? Troubles actually are treadmills for the soul. There are, these are stories that you go back personally and stories that you read about in the scriptures. And you're reminded over and over and over again of God's faithfulness, of God's presence, of God working, of God walking with you. It's last week on a Friday. I had a phone call from some dear friends and said, Rick, so I want you to know my dad had a major heart attack this morning. He's with Jesus. I know what that dad meant to that family. Then I talked to a daughter. They absolutely adored this man. He loved Jesus. How cool is that? But there was a different perspective. <laughs> I'm going to see my daddy again. I'm so glad he modeled for me what walking with God looked like. Can you imagine, Rick? I had the privilege of having a dad like this. I didn't even hear one little question. What's with this? What's my mom going to do? I'm sure they're there. But there was this unbelievable confidence. You're in charge. I fear you. I hung up the phone or pressed the button, whatever I do with them. I said, thank you, Jesus. It's different. It's different. I just talked to family that respects you, loves you, trusts you. It's different. You know, look at this. And I think it's wise to spend time with God and learn his promises so that we can react rather than respond. We need to grow in our fear of God. We need to drop to our knees or fall on our faces. We need to trust him and grow in our faith. Which brings up to me Red Sea rule number five. Fear God and grow in faith. Oh, 
That's what I want. I want it for me. I want it for you. I want it for my family. I want it for my neighbors. I want them to know my Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are a faithful God.